Welcome to NACSW's Podcast of the Month. Our podcast program makes available 20-minute samples of recordings of a wide variety of NACSW presentations and discussions on topics of particular interest to Christians in social work. Our Podcast of the Month program features a new sample podcast every 30 days for your listening pleasure. In addition, you can access the full-length version of this and all NACSW podcasts at no cost simply by becoming a member of NACSW or by ordering a copy of this podcast at a reasonable cost on NACSW's online bookstore. We hope you enjoyed today's sample podcast. Thank you for those that have stayed for the uh, second session of the day. Um, as you have seen, the topic is safer sanctuaries. Um, I cannot think of a better person to be able to share this topic. Um, when I began to follow Diana around, almost like a puppy, um, I had the opportunity to be, believe it or not, at the Dunhue Convention in Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah, buddy, it was great. It's a great barbecue. <laughs> and, um, and Diana presented this, and, and then she told she also did it on CBF. And uh, it's been a topic that has resonated um, with me as it has with others. And so I've asked Diana to share with us her, her work on safer sanctuaries. That's code for clergy sexual misconduct. Um, and while she is talking, I'd like for you to think and listen. Because uh, we ha- as we have mentioned, we're going to do a breakout group, uh, two breakout groups when the, following this. I'm glad to be very glad to introduce Representative Tom Birch, who's with us today. Um, again, as well as uh, Tina Ward-Pew. But, um, you know, as Diana mentioned this morning, or, you know, mentioned at lunch, uh, one of the great things that Baylor School of Social Work has at its discretion is also the other disciplines, which is, includes the School of Law. And um, we've actually begun to look at legislation that um, the, the dean passed. The dean at the Baylor School has said this should now meet the muster for the issue that people have regarding separation of church and state. Um, I kind of halfway was looking for Mary Lee Underwood maybe to pop in this afternoon. Uh, Mary Lee shared with me a bill that the House and the Senate passed last session that actually um, enhances the child abuse uh, child abuse to include persons in positions of power, which is something that Diane is going to be talking about today. So Mary Lee said to me, before we maybe reinvent the whole will, take a look at that legislation that was passed defining persons in uh, positions of power, and that might be something that we can begin to expand on, uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself in that, and then I would like to turn it over to Dr. Garland. You'll see video cameras around the room. Uh, several people, including legislators, uh, Senator Perry Clark, Senator Denise Harbor Angel, I spoke to Representative Rocky Adams yesterday, as well as Representative Joni Jenkins, all from the Jefferson County uh, Caucus, who would love to be here, um, but as we kind of mentioned earlier, this is kind of like spring break. So the legislators who have a week off during the governor's uh, veto days. Um, but I, I do have a strong sense that there's an interest in this topic in our General Assembly. Um, we also want to make, people, make those in the room who are clinicians, who have had to deal with this issue, also have an opportunity to talk when this is over today. So anyway, I'm going to sit down. Um, if you need to leave, feel free, because we understand it's Friday afternoon commitments, but, but turn us over to Dr. Garland, 
and thank say thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be back in my hometown, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I don't say in Texas often because I have to be careful, but I may have lived in Texas for 15 years, but I am uh, a Kentuckian in my heart and roots and raised my children in this community. It's home. It's good to be back. I'm sharing today a very, very hard topic. Uh, I think it's hard to talk about. Uh, we're talking about clergy sexual misconduct with adults. So I'm not here to talk about with children. I'm talking about religious leaders who uh, have sexual relationships with congregants, persons in their congregation. Um, and I know that this has happened in Louisville because I have been personally involved, and that was the, the fire in my belly that sent me into this um, uh, area of research was uh, our own experience in our own congregation where my husband followed as the interim pastor and only after he became the interim pastor did we learn that the uh, former pastor had had sexual relationships with women in that congregation and the reverberation through that congregation and trying to deal with it, trying to understand the dynamics of it was what sent me into this area of research. So. I want to share with you the research, what we found, which I think is horrific in terms of the prevalence of clergy sexual misconduct, um, how I reeled from that and then tried to understand that from a social sciences perspective about what allows, what, how we allow clergy sexual misconduct conduct to happen and can to continue to happen, and then what we can do in response. Um, it's a very hard topic because, and I'll start with the, um, the outcome, is that we make the assumption if the two persons are adults and the relationship was not physically forced, then it was consensual. And what I'm here to help us understand is that it, the concept of consent is never relevant in a powered relationship where one person has power over the other. We haven't had a lot of thinking about that in the social sciences because we really have not studied congregations and religious leadership in power. Um, and so I think it took, for me to be in a Christian university, I said, who's going to do something about this? And then it was kind of like, oh, wait, maybe we are the persons who should be looking at this issue. Um, what I have found as I presented, including I, I, I've done a lot of presentations on this research, um, sometimes it is women who have the hardest time understanding this um, because we want to feel like we have power over our own lives. And so it's a very difficult topic. Uh, the other thing I want to say is some of you in this room have been touched by this topic. Some of you, I don't know that, but some of you probably have been primary victims. Some of probably a number of you have been secondary victims just because of what we know from the research. I want this to be a safe place where nobody feels like they need to tell their story. This is not a therapy session. If you want to share an experience, you can, but, but I don't want anyone to feel like that they need to feel compelled to share their story. I have plenty of stories to share with you. Um, if you choose to do that, uh, you're, you're welcome to do so. I thought what we would do to start with, Darla asked me to do this because I did this at the workshop she went to, and I hadn't looked at it for a while, but I think it's a great place to start. And that is a clip from a movie made in 1951 with Gregory Peck called David and Bathsheba. 
and I want to play this, and then we'll look at the scripture. I'm playing this uh, because it goes to, I want you to look at what it implies about agency, who is in control, who's making decisions, um, and, and the power of this relationship. Uh, let's see if you can guess which ones are the lights. Have any of you seen that movie before? Some of you have. Um, okay. Let me get rid of this. Now what I'd like to do is look at the scripture passage from which this comes. This is Second Samuel 11. If you don't remember the story, you may want to look it up. Uh, I think this movie has shaped, even those of you who haven't seen it, but this has kind of shaped how this story is read. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported this is Bathsheba, daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she went back home. And then several verses later is the only time Bathsheba speaks in Scripture. She says, The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet, which is a euphemism for sleep with your wife. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, You have just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? And I'm going to stop there. Um, You may remember the rest of the story, which is that David sends Uriah to the front of the battle and has the troops withdraw, and he is killed. And David thinks he's gotten away with it until the prophet comes to him and confronts him with the story about a little lamb uh, that um, the... Uh, a rich man had a visitor come and he sent to the poor man and took his little lamb and slaughtered it um, to feed to his guest. And uh, David said, who is the man he shall, you know, he shall repay? And uh, the prophet uh, said, you are the man. So that, that's the story. How do you see the differences in the Bible story and the movie? Or do you see any? Um, And I'm going to start this by running through some I see, and I hope you will. uh, Well, I'm not very good with clickers. The movie, she sets him up to do it. Um, She made him do it, right? She knew he was going to be on the terrace that night. And so I went strutting around 
in her birthday suit. What about the Bible story? I think he violates her private space. Uh, We know that in that period of time in that culture, people did not disrobe to bathe, uh, but would wash under their clothing. Um, And the rooftop was a private space. No one was to look on someone else's rooftop. And it was it, the fact that he, he was higher up and looking down on her is symbolic. Um, he was looking down on her. Um, and, ladies, she was washing after her period. This was a ritual cleansing. Now, I don't know about you. That's not how I go about seducing my husband. Um, I, so this was she wasn't taking a bubble bath with servants. This was a ritual cleansing at that time of month. Um, so a very different picture. She had no idea that she was being watched um, would be the assumption. Um, but I think she did know. How do you know? We don't know that from Scripture. But she was... Uh, She knew that he would be there watching. According to the movie, but not according to the Bible verses that we've read. There's nothing here. He was supposed to be out at war. Remember, it was springtime when kings go to war. And David had been a warrior. This time, he sent them and he stayed home and got bored, uh, is the assumption there. And maybe, maybe she did. No, that he was going to be there. Maybe. I think so. Okay. I, I, I think something, you know the way the, the, uh, the word to get around to the ones that was in higher positions. Um, what was happening or going to happen. Maybe someone told her that he would be there. Maybe. I, you may be right, but we have no evidence in the scripture that she knew she was being watched. He was up above and looking down on her and saw her um, and sends for her. Um, the Next is Uriah in the movie chose war over his wife, right? I mean, he had no blood, no heart, to quote Gregory Peck, that he would choose to be uh, away at war. In the Bible story, David has sent him off to war. David is responsible for him. He is the king. Soldiers don't usually choose to go to the front lines, but they ha- he was sent. Um, and as you think about that, well, Uriah is off at war, and the king sends for Bathsheba. If you had been Bathsheba and the king sent for you, what would you think? My husband's been killed. So... Her anxiety is up, right? Yeah. The modern day thing is commanders don't send for the spouses of their subordinates. All right. So that would not happen today. And it's against all military pro- protocol. You have the people that go announce that. Right. And send for an evening dinner. Right. And, and we don't, again, the dinner is not in scripture. That was made up for the movie. Okay. Yeah. He. He sent for her. And we don't know what she was told, but I don't know about you. If the kings, or, or Obama for that matters, 
envoys were on my front door saying, you, you're wanted, I don't think I'd say, no, thank you. Right? I mean, she went because she was invited by this man who was her king and who had, he, he is a um, God-appointed king, which is where we get to the clergy sexual misconduct. So not only was he responsible for her as the king, but he is the spiritual leader. And she knows him as, he was known as the man after God's own heart. He was known as a trusted, righteous man. And he sins for her. Sometimes I think you have to read the link between lines. He is a man. He was a man. Yes, he was. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. In the movie, she's in control, right? She has contrived. He doesn't even know it. She has set this up. Poor man. Uh, he has set this all up. But we see in the, in the Bible story, he uses his power and, in fact, accentuates his power in order to trap her. Um, he didn't say, you want to meet me at the coffee shop. He didn't go himself. He sends for her a sign of his power and invites her into his space, violates her, and quite the opposite of the movie where she says, I'm not going to do this unless you'll marry me. And he says, oh, of course. No, in this movie, he has sex with her and he sends her away. And there is no other contact until she sends him a message. And what's the message? But we don't know that. We just know what it's, it didn't tell us that they had been together more than one time. That's right. That's, but all the evidence we have is there was this one time and then I'm pregnant. She sends a message. And I would say, I would think she's pregnant. Like you said, we haven't heard anything. But you have, I just you read between the lines again. You, you wonder, you know, I know the first time could happen. But I also know that it could have been several times. It could, it, it, you're right. It could have been. I don't know that it not having been several times or one time does not change the power dynamic here. And in fact, there is no move to wed her or to do anything to continue a relationship with her until she shows up pregnant and his response is to cover his tracks. The first thing he does is bring husband He doesn't say, all right, well, I'll marry you. I mean, he sends for the husband hoping he'll sleep with her and husband will think what? It's his baby, right? So that's, that's, that's the initial plan. And Uriah is more righteous than the king at this point. His, his colleagues are out on the battlefront, so he refuses to go home and take advantage of being called home, and so we have it. So these are the dynamics that are being set up. She, in the movie, she goes knowing what's going to happen. In the Bible study he, uh, story, he is in total control. And I would go on to say this is not a consensual relationship. She could not say no to him. Regardless of what happened, regardless perhaps even if she uh, cons- consented or went along with him and it was not violent, it still was rape. I don't know how that hits you. That's that's a difficult saying. Um, 
And it's taken some time for me to get to the point to really understand the lack of power that she had. But he treated her as an object to be used and then discarded. And that is inherently shaming. Um, to, to be used for sex and then treated as an object, not as a human being, not as a, as a covenantal partner, um, and then shamed. Now, how does this connect in your mind, or does it, to religious leaders in today's time? Yeah. Well, if you read the Old Testament, it seems... Thank you for listening today to this 20-minute sample of NACSW's Podcast of the Month featured selection. Just a reminder that you can access the full-length version of this and all NACSW podcasts at no cost by simply becoming a member of NACSW or by ordering a copy of this podcast at a reasonable cost on NACSW's online bookstore. We also hope that you will consider participating in additional NACSW activities and events, including NACSW's upcoming convention in the fall, our quarterly audio conference workshops, which provide CEUs accredited by the Association of Social Work Boards, and our online continuing education program. Also, we invite you to join NACSW's Facebook group or our Facebook fan page. For additional information about these and other NACSW benefits and services, you can go to our website at www.nacsw.org. Thanks again for listening in to our podcast session today.